Okay, hi everyone. Uh, long time no see, but we are doing, I think, one of two of the last two episodes within our Planetary Joy series. Now, what's interesting here is that we're not necessarily talking about houses that have planetary joys because the reason we did the joys was to do this sort of um, kill two birds with one stone thing where we decided to tackle the house meetings as well since those were heavily intertwined with the joys but you'll quickly notice that there are only seven planets and there are 12 houses so now we're getting into the houses that don't have joys yeah. yes that's a great intro um but as we normally do with our episodes we want to first talk about the current astrology weather and then any announcements and then we'll jump into this topic so that said, with the current astro weather, the big thing happening right now is it is eclipse season once again, and we have officially kicked off the eclipse series in um, Aries and Libra. Um, but we're also still not done with Taurus and Scorpio. We are going to get a Scorpio eclipse in a couple of weeks. So it's a funny season of having eclipses in two different um Two different like signs but they're both mars ruled <laughs> eclipses which is and then the ones that we'll get um later in the year are going to be both venus ruled so um we were both talking before we hit record about how we're already getting eclipsed so hard even though this, this eclipse was what like two days ago <laughs> yeah why don't you start um, you know mars is definitely in cancer ruling <laughs> <laughs> the eclipses uh, one thing I will say is that I feel like the Aries eclipse was really good for redefining who it is you want to be and how you want to show up in the world since, you know, I know people are like eclipses are malefic events inherently. And yes, they are. That's true. But I find that when one of the luminaries is in its domicile or exaltation, especially if it's a solar eclipse and you have the sun in domicile or exaltation, I feel like the net outcome is more positive than not. So for example, I was talking to Pao about ironically getting rejected from two jobs I thought I interviewed pretty well for, um, literally within 24 hours of the eclipse. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this just is just a sign that I need to redefine sort of my career direction. And maybe I need to reevaluate why I want jobs before I apply for them. And that being sort of the net positive thing that's happening. I mean, ironically, at the same time, I also realized something about eclipses that have happened in different cycles. So I was doing a, um, like a business consulting thing, um, like case competition uh, during this eclipse. And then when I think about one of the first Sag eclipses that was happening, I think it was also a solar eclipse in Sag. And it was, it was like a solar eclipse in Sag, but the week we applied for it was the first Taurus um, lunar eclipse. Mm. And I think it's interesting how like I'm seeing parts of the ending of the Taurus Scorpio cycle, but like in parallel having eclipses in my career houses, really pinging that I need to be focusing on developing certain skill sets. That's the thing that really hit me with this mm, eclipse. Yeah, no, it's been it's been big for me also career wise, but I like what you had said earlier about how um, th this Aries eclipse is a good one around just like, how are you presenting yourself for the, to the world? And 
um, for me, it, with it being in the 12th house, um, it, that's very, very like fascinating. Um, and like the 12th house is also my perfected house. And I am also going through my Jupiter and Aries return. And that Jupe was just so close to the eclipse. The eclipse was exactly on my nat natal Jupiter. So I'm feeling like this is just like only the beginning mm -hmm. of <laughs> just like, but, but I also think it's also like, for me, this has also been a good reminder of how, you know, with astrological transits, it just really tends to be multiple ones hitting at once, usually not like, mm -hmm. so if anyone's listening there and they're like, oh, like, the, I don't feel like I'm getting that hit with the eclipses. It's like, well, maybe it's because these transits, depending on your natal chart and just like how these other transits are hitting. Like for me, like Pluto's in my 10th house now. It's exactly squaring my moon. I have like, I now have Saturn in the 11th house and my very first Saturn square coming out of like my first Saturn return. Like, I think it's like that on top of that, like a really powerful eclipse that's hitting my chart. It's like, I think by the time, I mean, I have to talk through with you, like when we publish this, but maybe, maybe we'll do it. Yeah, I think, I think by the time this is released, this will be public information, but I'm, I, I'm quitting, this is public, that I, I'm quitting my current job and I'm going to start a new job. The new job is at my old workplace that I had been at for like nine years which is very oh like on top of like, the mercury retrograde <laughs> that is so loud <laughs> i love that um <laughs> wow that wow <laughs> it's very very loud it's um it's still a career change for me and that like i'll be working out of the new york office but for the international arm of the organization and i'm going to be compl doing completely different work i'm going to be going back to fundraising which is like what i had been doing prior to starting a 12-year career in communications oh my goodness <laughs> you know that you know why that's loud okay for one um i'm thinking of you know jupiter ruling the eighth for you but then i'm also thinking about oh pluto in the 10th going global yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then on top of, I was also telling Mo before we hit record that like, I think this is very 12th housey. I think I'm like done drinking and maybe it's completely like getting rid of alcohol or maybe it's like at the very least it have like, it's like, I really want to cut down now. Um, there's a lot of stuff I'm really considering too around just um, my workout routine. As a lot of people know, I'm a power lifter and I've been thinking about like taking a sort of like a break from it again um you know in that 12th house six house access right so yeah no it's really it's been <laughs> just crazy crazy astro weather and i know like i mean we have our own stories but just even just hearing what people are talking about on astro twitter it just seems like a lot of folks are going through something yeah i think it's funny that technically the mercury retrograde started literally i think two days after the eclipse and it's sandwiched in between <laughs> eclipses and you know what was funny mercury retrograde was so literal yesterday um so in the middle of this case competition i was doing um everybody was trying to join uh, on zoom because it was it was virtual and so i think there was an issue where maybe they had the wrong license or the wrong login or something but you know how Zoom is like, okay, you can have up to 100 people in whatever context. And there were only like 70 people in the room, but a lot of people couldn't get in because Zoom thought that there were over 100 people in the in the call. And it was just like, 
everything got pushed back by like 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. So everything ended up taking a lot longer than it should have. And I just remember being like, okay, I'm glad I got this over with. This is done. Great. I get my certificate saying I completed this business fundamentals course experience and now I can put it everywhere on my resume. It's fantastic. Like, wow. Yeah. No, that's that's great. But yes, very, very like literal. And then what's happening on the like just in the news this week too, right? Like, especially with Elon Musk having a rocket explode and and then just the all the just mess happening with the blue check verifications. Um, I don't know how up to date this statistic is because I was listening to a marketing and comms podcast that I'm sure was like recorded. Um you know, prior to that, like, I think it was the 420 deadline that um, Musk gave to get um, for people to um, get verified um, if they don't want to, they're already verified and have blue checks and don't want to lose their blue checks. But the stat in that podcast was like, I think only 12,000 people have gotten blue checks. Oh, that's worse than I thought. <laughs> that is so Oh God, that's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> that is so embarrassing. <laughs> you know, um, oh, you know what else was happening? So in parallel with the blue check dilemma, you know, Elon Musk started um, labeling a lot of um, news outlets in different countries around the world as government funded media and or state sponsored media. And here's the thing with a lot of public broadcasting things like, you know, NPR in the U.S., CBC here in Canada, um, you know, that's true, but it's like government funding is only so much of what they do. And just because the government gives money to public radio doesn't mean that the government controls the messaging of the public radio and the thing is the reason that that designation exists on twitter is not because of the source of the funding but specifically to highlight that by virtue of being government funded or state sponsored it's like the mouthpiece of the state it's like no that's not how npr works no yeah. that's not how cbc works and you saw the walking away of different media companies news companies specifically the public broadcasters walking away from um twitter and yeah. that being like a big deal so it is a huge huge deal that npr has left twitter and i remember again this is right before the retrograde but i do think it's funny you know the station names can also be very very loud that um, yeah, what what Elon Musk Twitter had done was I think the original wording was state affiliated media, yeah. and then they changed it to government funded or government sponsored. <laughs> yeah, and here it's really funny because you know you've got the leader of the opposition um, basically being like, "Thank you, Elon, for doing that," and you know everybody was kind of annoyed with him about it. It's like really just that's literally not what the cbc does and you know a lot of people do someone pointed out a lot of people in rural com communities in canada especially do rely on public radio and public news to get information and they rely on public um, media to broadcast a lot of things because it's not just news it's it's tv certain elements of culture and it's like you know, some of these people don't have cable like the people in the cities you know uh what are you doing <laughs> talking about defund and thanks elon for calling them out now we just need to defund them like what? <sighs> it's unhinged 
That's so really helpful. Yeah. Um, and then what? We have Scorpio Eclipse on the 5th. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I haven't even really, I'm, I'm like still reeling from this last one. So I, I haven't even like looked at like, oh yeah, what degrees is that Scorpio Eclipse? But yeah, it is a closing of a cycle. Like we've been getting these Taurus and Scorpio Eclipses now for um, since what, fall 2021 was the first one? Yeah. 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 Uh, I feel like with this eclipse, I'm thinking about what I wrote in my article. I, I describe it as post not clarity. <laughs> but but not in a not in the not in the nice way where you realize, wow, like this is the thing that it's like, wow, I really like this person I just hooked up with. It's more of the, oh, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> Since it's the moon in its fall, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that I really thought deeply about in the back of my mind while I was writing it was the fact that um, King Charles III is getting coronated the day after the eclipse. And it's like you've waited your whole life and you're basically the oldest person to be crowned monarch of anything. And you waited your whole life for this moment. And I just think of all the controversy that's come around, not just because of, you know, their internal family drama, but also just all the things going on in the UK right now as a country. It's like, mm -hmm. you wanted to take the helm of this because it's, well, partly because it's your birthright or whatever the hell, but, you know, you've waited for this your whole life and this is what you're in charge of now. Enjoy. Is it really enjoyable at this point, right? Um, I also think of the fact that, you know, the eclipse is right on Harry's chart ruler. And I'm just like, what is he going to do that day or the day before? I just feel like it's, it's going to really throw a wrench in this whole thing. So, wow. yeah. Oh yeah. This eclipse is on, it's at 14 degrees Scorpio. So it's just like opposite Uranus. Um, oh, that's even worse. <laughs> It's very disruptive. Very disruptive. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, still going to be ruled by that Mars and Cancer. Yeah. So the thing that I wrote about related to the eclipses being in mutual reception with Mars and Cancer, since, you know, Mars is in Cancer and the moon is rule, ruling Cancer, um, is that these two are kind of more linked than we would typically expect eclipses to be so you know we're asserting our new found identity with this new this um, new moon solar eclipse in Aries and then you know with the lunar eclipse in Scorpio you know Scorpio being eight signs away also being ruled by Mars just being like okay here are the last remnants of the old self or the old life that you can't have anymore and realizing that and I think that's part of what I mean by the post-net clarity. It's like mm. in crossing this threshold, you realize there's a thing you can't go back to. Mm. And I think, um, you know, when I think of Scorpio, especially the moon in Scorpio, I think a lot of grief and longing. So, yeah, I think that <laughs> I think I like for me. So these eclipses are in my first house, seventh house axis. And I've realized like in these past eclipses that it's very much bringing around themes around like just romantic partnership, but very specifically for me around non-monogamy and like being in a non-monogamous relationship for the first time. And I think 
right my understanding is i think right this goes kind of into announcements but um right after that eclipse in the scorpio is when a podcast on like a there's a dating podcast that me and my partner got interviewed for is going to be publicly released (laughs) in which we were interviewed about our relationship like how we got together and how non-monogamy is going for us so that feels very much like oh yeah this is a very 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 public statement of like this is who i am and what i do now (laughs) (laughs) i love it no it's great it's great for me it's just realizing that coming to terms with the whole um yeah phd life for me is done i'm not going back to that and i think i'm really committing to this new direction i need to be going in so yeah that's the realization that's huge it sucks but (laughs) it really sucks but you know what it just feels so necessary it feels so necessary um it's it's weird how exhilarating but terrifying having the freedom to do whatever the hell you want is so yeah there you go yeah that's real (laughs) um should we move into announcements yeah um i'll be at norwac i'll see you guys at the end of may and um other than that my books are open i do have saturn return consultations now i've only done one of them but it was really intense if you want to hear about saturn for two hours (laughs) (laughs) um and i literally assess what saturn is doing in the two or three solar returns that Saturn occupies the same sign in those charts um, come sit in my consultation chair and if you are a Pisces Saturn like myself happy Saturn return to us um, (laughs) there is a 30% discount so on any reading it doesn't have to be that one on literally any reading so there you go that's awesome (laughs) um yeah, for me, I, I don't really have astrology announcements anymore these days because like I, I like I'm not going to open my readings <laughs> like I'm not I haven't really been doing any talks um, and Twitter is just this funny place where, um, you know, this posts like Elon Twitter like I don't feel like like just with the way the algorithm is I don't even really see other astrologers like tweets as much anymore and like I haven't really been feeling like as active or engaged on there um and I wonder if it's partly due it is partly due to Twitter but I think some of it's also because like I live in New York City now and I'm constantly seeing astrologers in person and that feels like such a huge blessing that I I'm you know sometimes I take for granted and it hits me like wait I was living in Hawaii for not that long ago and had like no one to talk to no one to hang out with and no one to really kind of get that like astro like um fix with so um yeah that's it my only announcements are really not and then life's just been as I was describing just super busy outside of astrology like my career is taking on a whole new path um i'm gonna be on this dating podcast um which i can plug later when that's actually up in public but look out for (laughs) that (laughs) yeah yeah, i mean for me i feel like after i give this talk at norwag i don't know if i'm gonna have the bandwidth to do astrology talks um i'm really enjoying more of the writing honestly Mm -hmm. because twitter has like you said i i I, it's the same thing because you know what interestingly like I don't know what's going on with the algorithm because even like 
of the people I follow who are like astrology enthusiasts, I don't see any of their actual astrology tweets. I see ah. everything but their astrology tweets. Same. And it's like, I know you guys are talking about astrology and so am I. And I, you know what? I find that my not astrology tweets are getting more traction than the astrology tweets. And I'm just like, you know what? It's fine. But I, I've really been loving the, the sub stack. Like, and I feel like I've been consuming more astrology content on YouTube, actually. Like, mm. I've been watching a lot more people, you know, give their forecasts. I've been in, like, Vedic astrology land, so I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Like, I really don't know what's going on. So, yeah. <laughs> same, same. I do feel like, yeah, I, 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 the exact experience, like, I, I, none of my astrology tweets aren't, like, the few that I do nowadays, like, don't get the, like, same kind of um, engagement that, like you know a photo of me like right is getting it's just very yeah the, the so, so yeah it's things are changing things are always changing but like oh, with twitter especially it's just kind of in this so funny place. weird yeah it's so yeah. weird so i mean weirdly i feel like that's a good segue into talking about you know the houses because i think mm -hmm. of twitter as now a dysfunctional house right <laughs> <laughs> dysfunctional house like oh that's so funny but yes this is a good segue um yeah i think as mo described um like opening this episode we have now went through all of the houses where the planets join but that's seven houses right like what about the other five where there is a there there is no planet that joins there um we broke it up and we're going to break it up basically into two episodes. Um, today's episode is going to focus on the ones that are angular. So that's the fourth house, seventh house, and tenth house. And then our next episode will be on the other two, which are um, the second house and the eighth house, um, which, you know, are opposite each other and, um, you know, aka the money houses. So, um, so that's kind of how we're going to divide that up. Um, and yeah, like, so yeah, we wanted to talk about the fourth house, seventh house, and tenth house today. Um, there, that's three of the four angular houses. The only angular house then that has a planet that enjoys in it is the first house, Mercury. Um, that was our very first episode we did where we actually even just went into a deep dive of like what the planetary joys even are. So if folks are listening to this and didn't listen to that episode, like I would definitely encourage folks to go back to that episode on Mercury's joy in the first house. So, um, yeah, I, where do you want to go from here? Where do you want to start? Oh, I guess we could just, um, I don't know. I guess we could just introduce the concept of ang the angles and the pivots. And I think you have some good notes here on that. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, when we talked about the planetary joys in that um, Mercury in the first house episode, um, I went a lot into an article that Chris Brennan had wrote about the planetary joys in which um, he basically had like found that um, I guess there were so two other astrologers dorian greenbaum and micah ross in an, a paper they wrote about the role of egypt in the development of the horoscope in 2010 um they argued that um the use of the ascendant midheaven and subsequently the rest of the houses in the hellenistic tradition come from the egyptian decans and 
Chris was trying to make the argument in this article that like this is a good this, this does make a good case for the meaning of the angular houses, but it doesn't really explain the, where the meanings of the other houses came from. And that's where, um, you know, it, it like it can be argued that the planetary joys came first. And then from there, like figuring out where the planets joyed, um, then can, like that's where we derive the meanings for those said houses. So um the, these angular houses, in contrast, though, um, a lot of their meaning really comes from the place, their placement in the chart. And um, and so, I mean, you see it even literally in the names of these houses. Like, for example, um, the fourth house was called um, the subterraneous place. The seventh house was the setting place. And then the tenth house was the midheaven. Um, again, we're not going to be talking about the first house in this episode, but the, as you, you recall, the first house was um, the helm, as in like the helm of the ship. So these are all four houses that are very, very like place specifically named. And by place, I mean like where the sun is, um, like, yeah, where, yeah, like the midheaven is where like it's called culminates, which is sometimes also the name given to the 10th house. Mm -hmm. um, the seventh house being the setting place, as in like this is where the sun sets in the west, and then the subterraneous place being like the lowest possible point that the sun is at. Yeah, I think so much of the meanings of the houses that don't have joys i mean partially the first house as well well the first house is special but <laughs> have a lot to do with that tracking of diurnal motion and i guess just the motion of even just bodies on the ecliptic just watching them um rise culminate set and then obviously the antithesis of culmination which you can't see but you know it's happening right mm -hmm. um I think that's so embedded into the meanings of these houses. And I feel like regardless of what astrological tradition you're in, these houses are said to be the things that sort of hold things together. They're the the pivots where things turn, but they're also these sorts of, um, I forget the other term that was used, but they're kind of like the stakes. Yes, mm. they hold things up. They're basically holding your life together. And you can argue that the way that you think about these houses are obviously the, you know, the first, who are you? The fourth house, where you're from. Seventh house, who are you partnered with or who you interact with, right? And then the tenth house being like, what do you do in life? Yeah. Those are some very basic things to think about when you interpret anyone's life story. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and all every single angular house sees the ascendant or is literally the ascendant, as is the case in the first house. So um, the angular houses are also considered like the strongest houses. Um, and there's even just like an order in, of strength even within the angular houses that we could talk a little bit more when we're um, discussing each individual one. Um and then there's also, we talked about this in the Mercury episode where um, Hellenistic astrologers like also divided the chart into sections by like triplicity with the angular house, again, being kind of like that spoke for that specific triplicity. Um, so like, for example, um, fire, the fire triplicity is in the like top half of that chart with the 10th house being the center of that triplicity. And then therefore... The other triplicity lords um, for fire, so the sun joys in the ninth house, which is like on one side of the tenth, and then the Jupiter rules the eleventh house or joys in the eleventh house, which is the other side of that angle. So, yeah, um, there's that scheme as well. 
And I find that really fascinating to think about because if you think about the elements or the winds that got associated with each of the um, the angles, you can see clearly how the element that gets associated with them kind of speaks to the main action of that element. So I think of, you know, the rising angle, so the ascendant being associated with air, right? And I think about the rising action of air. Air is like slowly becoming less solid or less condensed and kind of spreading out and dispersing. And then you think of fire where molecules are just quite literally, I mean, I think more of plasma than I do of like gas particles. I think of, you know, something that's so excited that it's giving off light, right? And it's very visible. But then you think of the setting and you think of the condensing of water, right? And the formation mm -hmm. of liquid droplets and then when you think about you know just the subterranean place i mean earth and solids just are right mm -hmm. they're just there like mm -hmm. they don't not that they're totally inert but they're not really doing much as you're person. as you're talking about that i also just started imagining um like the tarot cards like the, the, the way the elements play out like that too yeah. and I, even when you're talking for example with um with the air um triplicities association with the first house um mm -hmm. and the houses that flank it and how um you know the first house the ascendant is you yourself and i just like like immediately had that thought of um that one enlightenment philosopher is renee Descartes who says i think therefore i, <laughs> I am think therefore I am. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah, and just like how much, yeah, a lot of who we are, we often like kind of really, it's like the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves and to other people is very much like. Listen, okay, love what you said about narrative because I've been, again, on a Vedic astrology kick the last two months. Like literally every day I'm watching something about some Vedic concept. And uh, I love what I love about the angular houses is that there's this concept called digbala, which is directional strength. So the the idea is that planets gain directional strength in certain houses. Now, something that I thought was interesting to parallel with um, the planetary joys in ancient Western astrology is that Mercury and Jupiter are the planets that get um, digbala in the first house. They have directional strength there. I thought <laughs> Mercury joys there, but then I think of like Jupiter being like that planet of storytelling. And then mm. in the Vedic system, you know, Jupiter is a very um, dharmic planet. And so Dharma has a lot to do with the actions you're supposed to do, like the sorts of trying to embody the right actions. And we spend so much of our lives trying to do that. And so that, that really makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. <laughs> totally. Um, I think um, we, we want to go through each of these houses, the fourth, the seventh, and the tenth. Um, I think before we dive into that, I do want to point out something we have pointed out in previous episodes as well, that um, there's one Hellenistic astrologer who followed a different scheme for the joys. Manilius felt that <laughs> Venus rejoiced in the tenth house and Saturn what? rejoiced in the fourth. Um, and then no. so... So in this scheme, the seventh house would be the only angular house where a planet doesn't rejoice. And I guess also on that, that means it's just like, okay, there, I don't think anyone was ever making any claims that this, any planet joined in the seventh. But yeah, for some reason, um, Manelia, I mean, as we go through each one, you actually kind of can see where he kind of came to this reasoning. Okay. Yeah, which is like very interesting. But um, but 
but no, the, he was the only one. The, 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 like, at least the evidence that we have anyway is that everyone like followed the joy scheme. That Wasn't he also the about. one who had the, um, the sign these decades? Yes, he had signed these decades. Oh, yeah, Manilius is wild. <laughs> no, I love it. I love the commitment. I love it. Um, but yeah, so do you have a preference in terms of like which direction we go in? Do you want to follow, you know, zodiacal order? Do you want to follow diurnal rotation? I mean, Ooh, it's you. good question. I was actually, I, I wanted to do, um, what do you call it? Um, zodiacal, zodiacal, order. zodiacal order. Um, and it's also numerical, uh, numerical yeah, order. Numericals, I, guess. <laughs> I was like, I don't really have a preference, but. Yeah, let's just do that, which means let's we'll be starting that. with the fourth house. Um, and we also are going to throw out, like, this is, I think, our only episode in a long time, if ever, where we have, like, no example charts, because it's just too many houses it's to cover. too many houses, and because there's no planet to root the expression in, it's like, realistically, how would we convey this in a meaningful way? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So yeah. we have a lot of content to cover anyway, so I think we'll be fine. Um, but yeah, let's start with the let's start with the fourth house, which, as I um had described earlier, is sometimes called or translates to the subterraneous place. Um, in Greek, that is um I, I have no idea how to pronounce Greek, but um hupojeon. Um, it literally means like under the earth because hupo is under and then j is earth. Um, sometimes that's where it's called like the underground place, the bottom of the head heavens. And, um, as Mo had actually described earlier, anti-culmination, which is in contrast to the mid heavens culmination. Um, so that's just like the literal, like translation for the fourth house. Again, very, very place-based naming, um, as I described, um, each of these angles are like at the center of a triplicity angular triad. And so the fourth, in the case of the fourth house, um, the fourth house is the center of the earth triplicity. So it's flanked by the third house, which where the moon joys, and then by um, the fifth house where Venus joys. So these are both triplicity. Plants are triplicity lords for the earth triplicity. Um, I find really interesting the grand trine. I know, pardon me, the reason why I find this interesting, especially for me, is I only have planets in these three houses except for the first house. But um, the grand trine between the fourth house, eighth house, and twelfth house is very fascinating to me because between those three, like the fourth house is the only one that could see the ascendant. Mm -hmm. um, and all three of these houses have very like dark or hidden associations. Um, <laughs> so. That's something to keep in mind when thinking about the fourth house, for sure. Um, Ooh, okay. On that note, I love that you brought that up because, you know, usually when we think of loss and death, we think more about the eighth and the twelfth. But the fourth house can be a death place, too, people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely a death place, too. I mean, it's quite literally under the earth. And so if we think about you know, the diurnal rotation of the sun and just other bodies in general, you can think of that as sort of a life cycle. You know, what happens to things after they pass the, the setting place and go to the subterranean place? They're in the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah, the fourth house, like when you think about where the sun, is, when the sun is in the fourth house, and I, I am someone who has the sun in the fourth house, like these are people who are born like either 
right before or right after midnight usually so it's like just kind of like this transition or like the end of a day and then the transition into a new day um so yeah i could definitely see i mean that's just a whole other way to view i guess death um i think it's a good segue too into meanings because um this is the last on the list but might as well go there but um the fourth house is often that what you would call the end of the matter um yeah. especially when you're like looking at um horary so for example if you pull a horary chart um you look at what either what's in the fourth house or the ruler of the fourth house is like oh yeah how does this i guess what's being questioned how does it ultimately end how does it ultimately end no that's that's actually a really nice way to think about it i always you know i'm not really a horary person and that's the one thing i struggle with especially when it comes to you know performing effective horary interpretation because i know a lot of people get so hung up on okay do the significators connect but no you have a whole house that represents or a whole cusp that represents okay, this is what happens at the end. <laughs> and I rarely hear people who reason through horaries even discuss, you know, the end of the matter, really. Yeah, there's, you know, like every, every like horaries, like, I mean, I guess we could say this with any ast astrological field, but it is one where people have very, very different practices. And there are some astrologers who think that people put too much weight on the end of the matter or the fourth house. But there's others who are like, no, it's it's very much worth looking to. And it also depends on the question, I suppose. But yeah, yes. It might, yeah, it might depend on the question. But I've seen some horary examples where the end of the matter was quite literal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so don't don't um sleep on it but yeah no there's a finality to it that's really interesting um speaking of finality and death like you know i i love that one of the connotations here is ancestry mm -hmm. um and lineage like i think that's something that definitely comes up that's one connection that i feel the fourth and the eighth have a lot the concept of ancestry and things that are passed down and inherited but i think I think there's more of that active passing down with the eighth house, but more of this like continuation of um, an established root with the ancestry piece. Mm -hmm. That's more fourth house. I think, um, you know, we said we're not doing example charts. Um, so it might, it's right to plug that um, there's another astrologer palace um, and they've been working on a book on the fourth house. Yes. That, um I have I have a fourth stellium, so I'm very much featured. I, I am in this book as an example, and I'm sure there's and there's going to be many many other examples too. People who have like really strong fourth house placements, so I definitely would recommend folks to check that out if they just want to understand the fourth house or like get more example charts um, with a prominent fourth house placements. Um, that all said, yes, and I, I do like it. Just seems like ancestry like comes up a lot, whether that's um, you know your connection with your ancestors. Um, I've seen even just for me personally, like ancestor veneration can definitely yeah. come up in that house as well, of course. Yeah. Definitely. Um, um, I mean, speaking of ancestors, it's hard because there's so many houses that can speak to relatives, right? I just think it's interesting that, you know, this is the triad that's flanked by extended family and siblings. So like the third house people and then, you know, the children, the progeny, which are fifth house people and so you know you, when you think of the angular triad i know a lot of people tend to think in zodiacal order where it's like okay you go from the third house to the fourth house to the fifth house but when you think of how planets are actually moving as we're experiencing day night cycles things are actually moving from the fifth house 
to the fourth house, to the third house, right? And the way you have to think about it is the angle, the things that were in the third house used to be angular and they're no longer angular. So I, the way I like to think about it is, okay, these are the people who had already joined your family, right? These are the people in your current branch of family. So your parents, immediate family, and then, you know, the fifth house people, like your children, offspring, these are the people who will become like the angular piece, right? So these are the people who are going to have their day in angularity, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to think about it. And I just think that, you know, when thinking of this angular triad, I think we don't talk enough about, you know, how much familial connotations that all three houses have together when you think about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's definitely like just very loud when you look at um, those three houses. Um, you know, we, we talked about the fourth house being ancestry and our most, I guess, immediate ancestors are our parents. So the parent parents are very, very, um, you know, major re- meaning associated with the fourth house. A lot of, um, you know, back and forth on which parent, though. And is it both parents? Is it one? Does it matter? And um, there are various traditions go in different ways. I would love to hear what the... Oh, you, you did put in the yeah, notes where no, the let's, let's talk about it. Because I know um, when Demetra was talking about uh, the second volume of her traditional astrology book, she was talking about the reason why the fourth house was the father, right? Because in ancient greek societies and some other adjacent western societies you know a lot of what was associated with family was through the patriline because you got claims to land another fourth house signification through the father um you got your name you got your status through your who your father was right um another thing i liked i also hear a lot is I mean, I hate the phrase, but you know how everyone's always saying mommy's baby, daddy's maybe, right? Um, the act of fathering a child is not is not like the most obvious thing, right? You mm-hmm. can see when a woman is pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see the act of, you know, insemination, right? That's not something you see, right? And you don't even know. And unfortunately, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, – there are a lot of people who, if you if your only metric of parentage is you know who contributed to your DNA, there are a lot of people who don't know their actual biological fathers who think that you know the person who's their dad is their actual biological father. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just a fact. It's just reality. I mean, things happen, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that hidden nature of you know, parentage. And I can see why from that perspective, you know, fourth house would be father. But then I think of the Vedic tradition where it's the ninth house that becomes the father because it's so like the first house is the derived fifth from the ninth. And so that's the father, right? Mm. Um, Whereas the fourth house would be the mother because, you know, the mother is actually carrying the child right and is mm. you know it's like the the material thing the material landing through which you emerged from right so that's that's where that um comes from and then 
Another thing I think about with the associations with mother, I mean, just think about the planets that are flanking yes. <laughs> in planetary joy. And it's funny that it's Venus and the moon because in the Vedic system, um, Venus and the moon have directional strength in the fourth. So, I mean, I feel like it's both parents. I mean, historically, I like from my own experience in working with clients, definitely see both parents showing up in the fourth. Um mm-hmm. But, like, for certain things, I can understand fourth being father, and for other things, I can understand it being mother, right? Yeah, I I generally do also see both being in the fourth, um, especially in natal. I could see, I mean, I personally haven't done this, but I could see scenarios where you would do a horary where maybe it is important to make that distinction between or trying to find different significators for father versus mother. Um, But generally, yeah, I do just tend to see both parents in the fourth house. Um, And then there's also, you know, there's also so many other scenarios where the people who raised you are not your biological parents. Um, There are also various instances where you could have multiple mothers, multiple fathers, um, other kinds of caregivers um, who are caring for you. And I do think they all generally kind of fall under that fourth house because of um, this is a good segue into another big meaning of the fourth house, which is home. Yes, home. Uh, (laughs) I'm thinking about the fact that I'm one in a fourth house perfection and two, it's ruled by Gemini. And I'm cursing mercury as we speak um yeah no i do think a lot of home because a lot of regardless i think these parental or um guardian like figures are you know your experience of home they're the things that are you know the home is like the foundation of the chart i think that's what a lot of people don't realize i think we get so especially in western astrology we get so hung up on things in the ascendant things in the midheaven where is the midheaven like blah 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 like you know, which house system are you using? Which is the correct 10th house? It's like, I I feel like we don't pay enough attention to the fourth house because I mean, even if you're thinking about it from like the perspective of diurnal rotation, it's like, okay, things are being sort of recycled, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about a lot of the Egyptian myths that went into these, um, the development of these points, I think it was, which God was it? It wasn't Osiris, was it? Like, I can't remember. But basically, it's like the whole point was like realizing that, you know, their God would have the sort of journey through the like living and being reborn, right? Mm-hmm. And so that space between the fourth house and the progression to the ascendant, that's the process of, you know, being reborn. And so it's like somebody is pushing you into being. And I feel like we don't really appreciate enough how those home and those early life experiences shape people mm-hmm. and how that really affects how the chart, you know, progresses, right? Yeah. Home is like, it's such a broad topic. Like, I actually also just, I just came from um, like just a couple of weeks ago, one of my really good friends just did a whole art exhibit that was just like unpacking like what home can really mean for many people. But mm-hmm. so, but for specifically for like when we're talking about the fourth house, um, it could be your literal home um, as in like the roof over your head or whatever kind of shelter you have. It could be as Mo has described, um, you know, your early, those early childhood, or like the, the home you grew up in as well can very much be there. Um, 
you know, when we, we talked about ancestry, but so ancestral lands is also something that, can, yes. you know, be associated with the fourth house. Um, I've, as someone who has like um, many planets in the fourth house, and I remember like talking a lot about this with Palace when I was interviewed for their book, but um for the home can also be this like very very metaphorical kind of place too like for me I very much associate like the fourth house with like I think a lot about my private world like we talk we're going to talk about the 10th house in a bit of just which is opposite house of just like our public self but the fourth house being like that private world as well um so is another yes I love the private life especially because you know it's not seen it's concealed and you know what, I think a lot about the fact that, you know, regardless of astrological tradition, like there's something about this part of the chart that does have a sort of lunar Venusian quality. There's like this ability to, I guess, enjoy things, right? And to take comfort in these things because they're kind of concealed and only for, I guess, intimates. So you're not necessarily performing something for other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think about one of the other significations of the fourth that comes from the Vedic system. And I think about what you're saying about private life. And I think one of them is like the level of happiness you have, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, like if all of your base needs are met and what are you like outside of, you know, the external thing, like what's going on with you internally? Are you happy or not, Right. Yeah, because you hear, you you know, you'll, you'll hear the story a lot of like someone who's just like out on the outside seems like extremely successful and just like has their shit together and then like very, lo- life is looking really, really good, but are they happy? <laughs> like, and it goes back again to just like the fourth house just being just like the foundation, right? Yeah. Like all of that public life stuff can fall apart if your private world is not in order yeah yeah and like i just think of the people i know who have like you know um the nodal axis in um the 10th and the fourth right and i think about uh I don't know. I think about that a lot. And I think about how, especially for people who have the South node and the fourth and that being like a very difficult experience. Cause you know, home is like this thing that's elusive and that you're probably desperately seeking like liberation from. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's one um, last signification um, on the fourth house we didn't touch on, and that's um, the the signification of hidden wealth. And some of that is literally because this house is called the subterranean place. And so, um, you know, everything from buried treasure to minerals in the ground. um, I only ever really see this come up in the concept of like a horary, maybe like, you know, someone's asking like a question regarding like land they own or just like something underneath. Actually, now I'm like recalling. I'm like, wait, I have the. F- I, I, I'm like now starting to get a memory of like. I felt like we had a, like an example chart where it was like very, very literally like. I don't remember if it's like someone working in mining or something like that. But anyway, I feel um, like we might have the. Yeah, no, I I could see that. Yep, things you can get from land. No, for sure. Um, yeah, actually. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say another one that I almost forgot about, just thinking about triplicity lords of houses. Um, You know, the third triplicity lord of the fourth house can sometimes be associated with, uh, if not end of life experiences, also confinement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
you know, just kind of like that bridge between the fourth and the twelfth, and also speaking to uh, some of those things. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um. Cool. You ready to talk about the seventh house? Oh, everyone's favorite house to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I guess this is my spicy take for um the day, but. You know, there's way more to the seventh house than just marriage people <laughs> and relationships. There's so much more. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, we'll definitely get into it. Um, actually, yeah, like, let's get into it now because the seventh house is called the setting place, which in Greek was deuces. And it's just, yeah, it's, a, it's where the sun sets. It's the opposite of the first house, which is where the sun rises. And... The West was um, where, um, you know, according to um, Greco-Roman mythology was where Hades was, aka the underworld. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Demetria George's book has like a really interesting quote um, by Manilius that called the seventh house the portal of somber Pluto, which I find fascinating on multiple levels. I think some of it has to do with that association with Hades being in the West, but it's very funny to think about, um, you know, they didn't know that Pluto existed as a planet at the time. No, you know, it's even funnier. Um, So I'm thinking about, also thinking about the Vedic tradition. So, um, you know, obviously everybody knows that I feel like every culture that's existed on this planet has venerated the sun or some iteration of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the karakas or like planets that gets associated with the sun sorry the um the houses so for the first house it's the sun obviously because you know it rises in the east and then it speaks to that soul being encased in a body right um but when you think about the planet that gains directional strength in the seventh it's saturn it's saturn (laughs) um and just thinking just hearing that you know um someone called this the portal of somber pluto i was like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness that's so loud yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah we'll we'll get into the meanings in a bit we'll get back to that topic but um before we do that um the as we've been talking about the triplicities being associated with these different um angular triads the one for this angular triad is the water triplicity and um, one of the triplicity lords of water is Mars, which, um, yeah, is right before it, or joys in the house right before the seventh house, which is the sixth house. This is where the scheme falls apart a little bit for me, where I'm like, oh, Venus is the other triplicity lord, but it's, it's more associated with the Earth triplicity in this scheme. But, you know, I think yeah. that's a whole other. Um, wasn't it the was it was it Ptolemy's scheme where there's only two there's only two lords, right? Um Okay. Yeah, this Ptolemy scheme. Yeah, because there's the Ptolemaic scheme of uh, triplicity lords where uh, it's just Mars 24-7 for the water signs. True. And I was like, you know what? This I, I can see it. Yeah, I can see it too. I, I, I was like, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. I respect it. I can see it. I get it. Uh, but I think it's interesting that, you know, the the seventh house is the one that's flanked by, you know two of the most overtly difficult houses in the zodiac Mm -hmm. and i know everybody's like longing for partner and relationship and something that i think about is you know if this is a place where you know mars is like the planetary joy that has the most proximity and then 
Saturn is said to have directional strength here, according to Vedic astrology. It's like, no wonder why relationships with other people are so difficult. <laughs> it's like, they're one, they're binding. Two, they're very restricting on what you can and can't do. And then three, like, there's this air of like always needing to come to, there's always problems that come up. Just thinking of the Mars rejoicing in the sixth piece. Yeah. Um, there's conflict, there's compromise, there's the work that it takes to, um, you know, keep a relationship going. There's, um, uh, yeah, and it's a really good point, too, about the eighth house association as well of, like, um, you know, there are the eight house associations of just, like, difficulties, challenges, like, psychological distress can sometimes fall under there, fears and anxieties, which very much can come up a lot in relationships. And there's also other people's resources. There is the combination of the combining of material resources um, that can come with marriage and partnership. You you know what that also makes me think of as well? Uh, You know, just like we were talking about thinking of the progression through the angular triad. So the sixth house may be describing things that soured between people or just ongoing conflicts that still haven't been resolved, right? That still need resolution. And then maybe the things happening in the seventh house describing the active uh, negotiations or alternatively, um, what was one of the other significations that comes up a lot? Legal matters, right? Mm -hmm. Like debate, legal matters, whatever. It's not just signing contracts. Sometimes it's like literally sparring with people yes yes um the act of sparring or attempting to achieve consensus or something and then the eighth (laughs) house being the sort of consequence like what what what's owed after you know the deal is either made or falls apart right yeah (laughs) so I think the other thing to note with the seventh house is it makes this grand trine with the third house and the 11th house. Um, These are all very relational houses um, dealing with other people. I also think, you know, we just talked about how the fourth house and its grand trine, like the only the fourth house can see the ascendant. In the case of these three houses, they all can see the ascendant, which I think, again, it just goes back to just like the relational um, nature between these houses and what I mean by that is like yeah like the three house the third house yes is siblings but it could also be like sibling like people and like yes. local community um, the seventh house will go into the many meanings on that but yeah marriage and partnership being a big one um, and then the eleventh house being a lot of these um, various like groups and associations um, yes. and networks we have I also feel like um, I think that it's helpful to make a distinction between the types of uh, relationships that you have because I, I would argue personally as you progress through this trine of relational houses the types of relationships that are described become less intimate and I know that challenges a lot of people's conceptions because they're like oh the seventh house is where marriage happens but then the real marriage happens in the eighth because you know you're merging resources and I'm like that's not stuff you have control over though (laughs) (laughs) that's other people's stuff right um and you know because there's like the seventh house by nature has less proximity to you right you're constantly trying to i like to joke you're constantly trying to figure out how to be in relationship with other people because you have no idea Part of the reason why the eighth house is so challenging, which we'll go into later, is because, you know, you can already barely understand, like, 
the things you need to sustain you, like second house. Mm -hmm. It's just so close. It's so proximal. You're not thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. You're just doing it. You can't even understand your own stuff. How are you going to understand what other people are doing? And then let alone like trying to have a relationship with them, right? Right. So it's a lot more difficult than it looks. And I find that it's easier for, you know, you to have that third house relationship because one, the ascendant is in the superior sextile, okay? Like mm -hmm. one, that's a lot easier. Two, like I think it has more of the, there's more, there's more influence that you have on the direction of those relationships. Um, whereas, you know, even though, you know, there's more proximity in the 11th house compared to the seventh, mm -hmm. I think that because it's above the horizon, it's not, and it, the 11th house is in the superior position, mm -hmm. you're not directing as much of that relationship. You're like responding to the demands of those types of relationships, making them a little less intimate. And I, like I think it's because they're less intimate, it's easier, right? Yeah, I like, I, I, I really like that you're bringing this up because I think it's also important to note that like, I think the the importance that our society has placed on marriage and rom romance, very specifically romantic love is a relatively new phenomenon. <laughs> like, yes, marriage used to be a different thing, which we'll dive more into when we're talking about the seventh house um, significations. But um, whereas, yeah, like, uh, you know, I think like what we lose in that is like an emphasis on community, which I really like a close community, which I really think um, falls in the third house. And I, I just constantly think a lot about um, like as like an organizer, um, I've thought a lot about how um, everything worth doing like should or could should. And I think sometimes must be done in community and yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of that importance has been placed these days in the seventh house. And it's like, no, you kind of sleep on the third yeah, house too. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to come back to is this concept that the seventh house is associated with death. And that's really interesting to me. I mean, one, it's obvious, like when you think about, you know, uh, diurnal rotation, but just thinking the idea that, you know, the seventh house is so proximal to the houses that do get associated with death or illness, you know, sixth or eighth house. That's really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That yeah. marriage would fall in that house. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, the, the seventh house associa associations with death um, are something I think we, in, like, these days tend to sleep on a lot more. You don't hear people talk about the seventh house and death too much, but it was something that um, traditional astrologers talked about a lot. And, you know, as we were just describing earlier, the fact that this was called the setting place and that. Um, the west, the, this area is the place where apparently, like the portal to Hades is, aka the um, the underworld. Um, yeah, no, there definitely are death significations here, and I think you bring up just this like this excellent point that this house is very much flanked by two of the most difficult houses that are can often be associated with death, illness, and destruction. Yeah, I mean, I I just think of the way that. Also, just thinking about our conversation about how the idea of marriage or even that long-term committed romantic partnership has just become so pervasive in modern culture and how a lot of people basically lose themselves in mm. trying to 
have these relationships. And I get that, you know, relationships are binding and, you know, you do need to, you know, forego some of your own concerns to maintain them. But I think that it's gotten so pathological that people forget that, you know, you have your own identity and that there are other ways to relate to people beyond this type of relationship. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I'm, I, I think part of why like Esther Perel's become like a really like really famous now and get her ideas are becoming really popular around like romance and sex and love is because um, she's not the only one touching on this, but I feel like she's become one of the more prominent like thinkers around how like you need that separateness for like romance and desire to continue in a relationship. Yes. And I feel like because of just like the importance that's placed on romance, like people get this like really wrong idea that you need to do everything with a partner and you have to like merge your lives together as quickly as possible. And, you know, then, then codependency can arise. It's like all that kind of stuff. When actually like, does, um, that, that makes me think a lot about this, that, um, this split between the first house or the opposition between the first house and the seventh house of like mm -hmm. needing to have that separateness to be able to have intimacy. Yes. Yes. I mean, I also love that, you know, other people live in the seventh house besides yeah. the marriage partner, like <laughs> business partners. Cause I feel like a lot of what people miss about the seventh house is that there's so much contractual stuff that goes on here. Um, and contrary to popular belief, marriage was not always about love. It was transactional. Mm -hmm. It was a contract, right? You know, so that you could guarantee that someone you know, a lot of people would get married for the purpose of forming, you know, alliances with other families so that it's like, okay, you guys have these resources. We have these resources. Let's marry off our like children. And we're supposed to, it's supposed to encourage people to pull resources together as like collateral, right? It's like, okay, them forming mm -hmm. this relationship is collateral. Yes, they produce progeny, but then that's our collateral because we're all related now, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that people don't think about that enough, but not just that kind of partnership, even just business partners can be a very seventh house topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Business partners can fall under there. Um, you know, the in horror and electional, the ruler of the seventh house is like the, the default other person when a question is being asked and oftentimes we are asking questions about other people um but the ruler like like almost always it's like the ruler of the seventh house is going to be like other the person. default other person um anyone you're signing definitely anyone you're signing some kind of like legal contract with i think will fall like in the seventh house um again yeah. there there are probably some exceptions i can't think of off the top of my head but that's like another space um again you know the, the concept of romantic partner is is again very relatively new and um romantic partners do tend to fall in the seventh house now but yeah when you look at the ancient text it really is like people are primarily talking about marriage and again marriage is a very very transactional um thing transactional. i'm sorry like people the only great thing about it is tax benefits but only <laughs> Only if you make a certain amount of money. Yes. yes. After that, it's not, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> yeah, because cohabitating is 
that's another thing that's also becoming really new is cohabitating um before marriage is like the it has become the norm in a lot of like western countries now and um and that i would say is probably the primary benefit of romantic partnership is like when when you are kind of really looking at the monetary benefits it's like oh yeah cohabitating bills um (laughs) splitting splitting rent yeah (laughs) it's not cheap not cheap um yeah um the other part, like another signification of the seventh house is enemies. <laughs> yep. Yes. Um, you're going to laugh because it's also a sixth house signification. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I could see both being enemies. Yes. Quite literally. Yes. Um, so I feel like this kind of goes hand in hand with another signification that I feel is underrated when it comes to the seventh house. I think a lot of litigation, right? Cause you know, usually when people go to court, it's because someone's violated some sort of rule or agreement. And, you know, laws are basically things we agree to by virtue of living where we live, right? Mm-hmm. We just have to have laws so that we can, you know, they're meant to be restrictive. I just think of the way that the seventh house is, again, opposed to the first. It imposes limits. And mm-hmm. the opposition has that nature of Saturn. So definitely. But enemies, absolutely. People who are commi- competing with you, right? Yep, yep. When you're doing horary and electional, like if whether it's about like some kind of opponent, an opposing sports team, again, yeah, lit- litigation, the opposing party, like that's always going to be the seventh house. Always the seventh. I mean, what I love about thinking about the first and the seventh, and also just the nature of the opposition. It's the only aspect where there is no superior or inferior position, right? Mm-hmm. You're on equal footing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the Zodiac. And so it's like this tug of war that you're playing and maybe there are things that can sway things in your favor, but there's definitely more of that equal footing for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then um, one last signification that we haven't touched on that this is one that I don't hear too much about. Um, this was in Demetra George's book. And I personally haven't seen it too much myself. I have to think about this one some more, but travel. And um, this could perhaps be, be because, again, because of that opposition to the first house, which was the considered the helm, like as in like the helm of the ship. And then so the seventh house can be viewed as like, I guess, a disembarkment from that ship. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of um, planets that are opposite their domicile and how they're said to be exiled in a way or Mm. like distant, right? There's a distance and there's a foreignness um, that is definitely implied. I wouldn't say I would say, I guess like in terms of chart examples I've seen or looked at, I just feel like travel is definitely a better signification of the ninth and twelfth in yeah. particular. Yeah, but me too. I can understand the logic totally. Yeah. Um. All right. Anything else on the seventh, or should we transition to the tenth? No, let's go to the tenth. <laughs> Great. Okay. Last but not least, um, the tenth house was, and still often is called, um, well, sometimes called the midheaven. Um. Which in Greek is, oh my God, bear with me in this pronunciation, Mesuranima. Um, and this was considered like the second best or, or like the second strongest house with the first house being the strongest house. Really um, interesting. Yeah. I know some people are 
they go back and forth on which like some people are like it's the 10th that's stronger you know it, but- yeah i think it's i think that's arguable too um yeah I, I, like i but i think it's like what people tend to be on the same page on is it's it's the it's the first and the 10th are the strongest They're, towers in yeah, terms of just the way two. you would order that totally <laughs> is, exactly is debatable but um I think it's interesting that Dimitri also points out that in the Thema Mundi, that would put, um, which is a Cancer Rising chart, that then puts um, Aries in the 10th house. <laughs> oh um, my god, wait a minute. That is great, because when you think of the planets that have Dingbala here, it's the Sun and Mars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Sun and Mars, yep. And yep. then that does also make me think of, like, um, just kind of rounding out this discussion about the triplicities for each of the angular triads. Um, this is the triad that's associated with the fire triplicity so again as i described earlier it's flanked by um the ninth house which was where the sun joys and then the 11th house which is where jupiter joys um so yeah very yeah there's just like a, this very fiery nature to the 10th very house so no matter which way you cut it um and yeah, it's, you know, the, as for the naming of it, it's named so because this is considered like the middle of the heavens. This is like the sun's peak brightness um, when the sun's like in that point of the sky. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I love that basically the main thing about the 10th is social status. And oh, no, kitty, don't do that. <laughs> Sorry, my cat was literally about to jump on my laptop. Oh, no. Um, but yeah, no, the 10th speaks a lot to, as you wrote in the notes, just public life and public self. And I love that the sun just having such strong associations with this part of the chart, like the top half of the chart, <coughs> really speaks to that sort of um, what you're trying to project in life and how you show up in the world for sure. Like I think that the reputation piece is really, really important here. Yeah, I think a lot again about when we were talking about when you were talking about the we we're talking about the chart, um, the triplicity triads, and I think about it, it's this one's association with fire. It makes me think about the um, the fire element or the wands in tarot, and when you just really follow the journey of the wands, um, it's very very much all about achievement and glory, and there's just like yeah, so much of that, and it's. You know, I I love thinking about that journey through that arcana because it it just makes you realize that achieving glory is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> and I've been thinking a lot about the 10th house and just thinking about, you know, separating the 10th house from the concept of midheaven. Uh, I've really leaned into the idea that the midheaven itself describes your personal sense of you know, life purpose. Mm-hmm. Whereas the 10th house itself is literally just what you do. Right? Yeah. And those things are sometimes not the same thing for people. And once I realized that, yeah, like for people who have the floating MCIC axis, the fact that they're not always the same thing for people. Fantastic. And, you know, in client work, like I just had a client today who had the same deal. It was the same thing. And they found that they really resonated with that description. Like Mm. what I do is very different from what I feel like I, what I feel like I do or what I feel like I should do. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, there's like a sense of relief that they feel when they hear that. Right. Mm. That's great. Yeah. 
I, um, you know, the career is a t- like a meaning that's often associated with the 10th house. Um, but uh, yeah, I do think it's very, very important to break it down, like exactly how you've worded, like the 10th house is like what you do. And but there is a reality that yeah, like with, we do live in this capitalist society where the vast majority of us like what we do tends to be like what we do for work, like most of our time is going toward our jobs, because we need it to sustain ourselves most of us anyway (laughs) yeah i mean i also think about the association of just like jupiter and the sun with the joys that flank this house and i really think of that i'm just thinking of that article i wrote on the sun jupiter and divinity it's hilarious because i feel like both of those planets can have very soulful almost religious connotations and I do find that one of the things that people do struggle with in life is what am I supposed to be doing how how much Mm -hmm. am I living up to you know my potential Jupiter how authentic am I being towards you know what I feel like I should be doing or what I feel like my identity or essence is which is you know very solar Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. Yeah, as astrologers, you know, you were laughing about when we were talking about the seventh house, how it's like everyone's favorite house. Because, yeah, as astrologers, people love asking us about romance. Um, But I would say they also love just as much to ask about their careers. Um, Yeah, it tends to be like the number one thing I I had been asked about with um, my clients um, before. And um, I think, you know, we were talking with the previous two houses about the grand trines that they make. Um, for the 10th house, um, that grand trine is with the set, the second house and the sixth house. And I often view these houses as career-related houses. Like, your second, the second house is your income. And um, and the sixth house is tends to often be, like, your coworkers, your work environment, um, that, that those kind of things. The work itself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, the 10th house being the actual, you know, job description or like the industry you work in. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I do find that I love thinking about the triplicity lords of the 10th and what they can signify, because sometimes when people are asking about things like, okay, like power and glory and status, right? you know, there are like three different kinds of that. So I think the first Lord was something about how much authority you can command in life, right? Mm -hmm. The second Lord was like, how well known will you be for it? And then, you know, the third Lord describes how durable will either of those things be. And I think it's funny that, you know, some people think that they want to be famous but some people want to be powerful and they're not always the same thing no (laughs) there are plenty of people who have a lot of influence but you don't know their name right but they're still dictating a lot of things that you know happen to us for example like i don't know you can't name every person who's on every you know every seat of joe biden's cabinet like you can only name a handful of them if they're in the news but you're not thinking about those people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not in the news every day unless they're doing something insane, uh, you know, but they still have a lot of influence over different facets of our life. Like I couldn't tell you who is like a super higher up within like the intelligence agencies. Like they have so much power, but like I don't even know who half those people are. Like, Yeah, my... You know, um. 
my partner finished a um, biography on a man named Robert Moses, who the vast majority of people haven't heard of. And he was a park commissioner for New York City, which again, doesn't sound like much of a title, but he was like the... He is like the reason why like New York City is like the modern city that it is today. He's like the reason why it's like the roads were built a certain way, parks were built in certain places. He was responsible for displacing a ton of black and brown communities. Like he had so much power and like I think what my partner and like and now me because I would hear all his stories of just like reading about this man's life was just like yeah, he just found all these behind the way scene, like behind the scenes ways to like really consolidate power and get himself to a point where he was just like even more powerful than the mayor and no one has right. no idea who he is. Right? It it no one thinks about this, but then you think about like a lot of people who are you know well known and famous, but they don't have a lot of you know pull or authority. Like I know everybody's really big on influencer culture these days, right? But all they can do is sell you things and, you know, they're not really making decisions that impact your life, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to get you to make decisions, but it's different from them being empowered to actually affect the structure by which you engage with things in your life. Like that's not something they're capable of doing, but they're still very visible and very public. Right. <clears throat> um, I... um. One other thing you, I had noted earlier that, again, Manilius um, very strangely <laughs> thought that um, Saturn joys in the fourth house, but then Venus joys in the tenth house. And that's an interesting thing, I guess, to think about because I guess, you know, marriage, it is true that like marriage and relationships, especially back then, but including even now, like they do contribute to your social status as well and they could make or break it. Yeah, that that's that's actually true. And, you know, but then I think about, like, I know they're not in the houses, but they're flanking. And I think of, you know, one of the core functions of marriage was to forge alliances, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very, that's a very Jupiter thing. That's so and Jupiter. I feel like, you know, with, what's it called? The, you know, the house that comes after the 10th, speaking to some of those significations like actually you know makes a lot of sense and i love thinking about the progression through this particular triad because you know the ninth house describes like you know sort of that reason for seeking you know a particular um life path or status and it's like the things that preceded that might have motivated you to take on a certain role you know, the 10th house itself and everything in it, describing like the things actively in the role and then the 11th house describing, you know, what you have to gain from the role, like what comes next. I like to joke that 11th house is like retirement. I know everybody's like, yeah, but it's not idle. And like, but it's literally what you do after your career. Like Another thing I've seen too, I've seen this like way too often in example charts. Um, and I don't know if you've seen in client charts as well, but um, and when when these houses are perfected, like I've found that 10th house perfection years, like, yeah, like it will be like an active time in career, but it tends to be the results of that, like whether that's like a promotion or like an album release or like those kind of things tend to happen in the 11th house year. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, funny, very funny literal story, like, <clears throat> um, let's see, I wrapped up my 
10th house year and I graduated from college. I mean, luckily, what's funny is that my graduation was literally like right as I was changing perfection years. And then like the next year, it's like, okay, not only do I have a degree, I got a job because I have this degree. Great. Like, and then everything else that came after it. No, definitely. I, I've definitely seen things play out that way for sure. Yeah, for me, because I, I just ended that series. And yeah, my right at the end of my 10th house year was when I was like, I'm going to quit my job and leave Hawaii. And then I quit my job and leave left Hawaii in the 11th house year. Yep. And then like, you know, like gained all of the things as a result of yeah. leaving the job. Like for sure. I've definitely seen it that the 10th house year is you really setting a lot of things into motion or like getting something that will elevate your status and then not only and then just realizing that after like I've definitely seen it play out that way yeah um I think one uh, last signification um we, well we touched a little bit about this when we were talking about the fourth house was that um yeah the signification yeah. of this house of being like the mother um, um I've also seen the father yeah I'm not as I'm not as keen on that interpretation, and I find that that one doesn't pan out as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. we, we discussed this a little bit already, but yeah, mm-hmm. even you were just saying that it's very obvious who someone's mother is, like both just yeah. the visible signs of pregnancy as well, you know, yeah. um, which could be why, like, the ten, like the, those 10th house significations are there. Um yeah. But there is also, like, in, I guess in terms of just trying to make an argument, if you were to make an argument for, like, the 10th house being father, there is also just, um, in many societies still, um, you take your father's last name, right, when you're born. And that does inform your public identity. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I can see that. But I still think parental's definitely more fourth house. I agree. <laughs> I do, too. The fourth house. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, no, I think that we've covered everything and I can't wait to talk about 2-8. Me too. <laughs> that one's going to be a doozy. Yeah, that'll be fun. I'm excited. Um, all right. Well, thanks, um, Mo, for talking about this stuff and thanks everyone for listening.